And this is what we say that makes us really, really different. The future of, of the fashion industry, what represents 100% you. The difference between a company losing or gaining a million on a single day just from currency. Just do something fun. And I just brought a bag full of footballs. When it really becomes a company, when you start to have some of those uncomfortable moments, I understand when I walk into a room, I might need to smile more. But we had to come up with a large amount of money in a short amount of time. Hello, everyone. This is Dan Kihanya. Thanks so much for listening in. You just heard our guest for this episode, A.K. Eekwalker from Elite Styles. He's bringing function, fit, and fashion to the world of custom apparel, so stay tuned. Our episode is sponsored by Black Men Talk Tech. As always, if you are excited about what we are doing with Founders Unfound, you can find our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please follow us on Twitter, at Founders Unfound, or go to our website, foundersunfound.com, and sign up for our updates. And finally, don't forget to check out our new swag store with the Loyalist if you're up for that Founders Unfound t-shirt or coffee mug. Just hit the store link on our site. Now, on with the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode five in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have A.K. Eekwalker, or Coach A.K. He's been a collegiate and Olympic athlete, a motivational speaker, an educator, and a social impact entrepreneur. But today, we're speaking with him, co-founder and CEO of Elite Styles, a startup on a mission to create professional attire with fit, function, and fashion for the athlete build. Welcome to the show, A.K. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing, Dan? Thank you so much for having me on today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's start off with what exactly is Elite Styles? Well, Elite Styles is a company that I founded around a year ago. And what we focus on is professional attire, uh, basically workwear for athletes off the field. So, you know, my background is I was a former professional athlete and it was always a challenge for me to find clothing. You know, usually because of my build and also um, amongst other things. So it's actually what athletes work professionally off the field. That makes a lot of sense. And I know that you have a different uh, definition of athlete, so to speak. It's not just the uh, basketball player or football player. What, do, what is the athlete build and compass? Well, yeah, and it's athlete build and also the lifestyle, because I'll say right now as uh, a former professional athlete, Right now, I've been a few years out of the game, um, so I'm not going to consider myself (laughs) an elite-level athlete. But I would say, you know, how we define athlete and also the working professional could be everything from the athlete that plays on Sunday or the firefighters, the military professionals, or even the executives that are looking to stay in shape um, outside the, the, the working arena. Um, so an athlete can also be everyone from the size of a, a jockey to a sumo wrestler. We all come in all shapes and sizes. So true. So true. I think most of us, um, I would include myself, not that I'm an athlete per se. I, uh, I'm a weekend warrior like most people, but I do feel like I'm not an off the rack guy. And so this is one of the things that appealed to me in Battle League Styles is this idea that you don't have to fit your 
round peg into somebody else's square hole. So tell us how it works. So how do, if somebody's interested in getting some peril through you, how does it work? Do they go to your site? Do they get measured? Or how do they go about choosing something from your site? Right now, we're really going to make it the easiest as you can go to our site, schedule a, a consultation with one of our design consultants or coaches. And we actually have a form online where you can actually measure yourself. And some people always ask, well, should I go to a tailor? It's like, no, we actually recommend individuals to measure themselves because we've actually seen problems. Huh. Yeah, if they go to a tailor. Really? Yeah. Well, think about it. So if with our self-measuring guide, we use that information so our team and our tailors and our professional tailors can make those attire. But if you measured yourself and you've never done it, you're going to check two to three times to make sure you're doing it right. Uh, we found what they do is, like, well, I've done a shoulder before. I've done an arm length before. So they do it in their style. But we have to make sure that all of our measurements are consistent so we can actually make sure when it goes back to our team, it's made specifically towards the individual's body. That makes somehow it makes perfect <laughs> sense now that you say you'll that. Double, you'll double check it multiple different times because you don't know. Right, right. That's... That's actually a great point. So I go through and I get all these measurements done and I make the consultation. Do I do I decide what the purpose is for my attire or do I decide, you know, yeah, formal, yeah. So, informal? And this is what we say is makes us really, really different. And I would say for me, if people know my background, I was an athlete, but most people would say I was never a pretty good dresser. I was never a good dresser. <laughs> and, and the reason why, and I'm going to talk about why that all connects to what makes us different and actually our style and our process is when I went to the store for my whole entire life, it was hard for me to find clothing. Now, if I got, I'm a six foot three, 220 pound individual athlete. And mind you, I'm the smallest person in my family of six. What? Yeah, we're, I'm a size of, I'm a linebacker and my brothers are large individuals. I'm a triplet too. So I have a twin brother and a twin sister. Um, oh my gosh, were they, all, were they all athletes? Yeah, so me and my brother and my twin sister, we were triplet. We got we all got college scholarships to run track and field in college. Oh my and gosh. I continued to stay, my sister stayed, and then my brother also went into acting. And so my brother's actually an actor in Hollywood. He's done stuff with like Will Smith, all these other types of individuals. So <laughs> if somebody says they've seen somebody like me, it's not. It's not uh. <laughs> I'm a Nigerian, my background, I'm, I'm Nigerian. We did not grow up small. We are big, gorgeous uh, <laughs> individuals. Um, but the reason I'll say is like we all grew, you know, really big. And, you know, when I went to the store and I tried to get a large shirt, it would fit my waist, but it would go up halfway up my sleeve. And so I would ask, like, well, I want a, 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 an extra large shirt. And so I would get the extra large shirt. It would fit me like a bow. It would fit on my sleeves. But what ended up happening was I had to ask, well, let me just get the large and I'd roll up my sleeves. And I would just say that was my fashion. And it wasn't really because it was my fashion, it just happened to be the only way that I can find clothes that fit. Not too fun in the winter time. <laughs> but so many people have this issue. Well, not, it's not only they can find, you know, difficulty finding, finding clothing off the rack, but even if I did find a particular item off the rack, it might have only been in the colors that they had. It was just, okay, if it's a green shirt, like say I wanted a blue one, they didn't have it. So I had to wait until it came into season. So one of the things we do is we make sure that everything's made to measure towards the individual's body. But I also realized as we did focus groups when we first started, and I think that's one of the best ways to start a company, especially for us, I found that to be one of our strategic advantages because this company was built from several focus groups to understand our target market. But they also talked about, it's not only the sizing that's the issue, 
but in addition to there's a sense of like functionality. So, you know, for me, I ride my bike to work because I, I live in Boston and, you know, traffic sucks. And sometimes yep. I get to work and I'd be sweating still. And on my shirts that I had beforehand, I'd have these sweat stains, these brown sweat stains on my collar. And I said, I don't want that anymore. And so we developed some fabrics on the shirt so you no longer get those brown sweat snakes. Brilliant. Fabrics. Brilliant. That is awesome. I mean, I I, uh, I think most of my shirts, basically, they're on life support when I start seeing that, uh, when I start seeing that, that uh, nice sweat mark on the collar. And so mm-hmm. anything that can deal with that is pretty innovative. That's awesome. So yeah, I would say, I mean, to touch on that is we're the only company in the world that allows people full control over the creative process. So everything's made to measure to your body. Second part is you can add a sense of functionality to it. The sweat guard collars, the stretchier fabrics. Um, we have this new one that we put together. And, you know, like I said, I'm a big family. Yeah. Uh, and my mom loves to cook. She's an amazing cook. And I remember coming home one day and had this particular shirt that I really, really loved. I loved it. And I went home, we had some good food. And I remember coming back and I wore that same shirt to uh, a meeting with an executive. And I remember I was sitting there and while we were talking, like every couple of seconds, he would look down and look me in the eyes and look down, then look back up and look down, look back up. I was like, what is he doing? Oh my. And I kind of glanced down for a second and it was my buttons. They were spreading. They're like trying to hold on. I felt like the guy was worried that the fuck was right in the forehead. Right? They were holding That's funny. That's probably one of those situations where he's like, do I say something or do I, I don't know him that well. And like, uh, like just, I can't take my eyes off it. <laughs> He's letting himself go. He's letting himself go. But I said never again. And so we have these uh, new shirts where you can actually, no matter if you gain weight or lose weight, and especially you have these athletes that are gaining weight and losing weight, just non-athletes that have that same issue where you don't have that button spread anymore. Um, we have these hidden zippers where the pressure actually is on the zippers rather than the buttons. So no matter how you stand, no matter what you wear, you always have this perfect crease. So what we do is we focus on fit, making sure everything fits to your body, functionality, where you add functionality based on your needs, and then also style and fashion. We literally have unlimited styles. We can even create our own fabrics. I can even get your face printed on a jacket, if need be. That's cool. And I love the fact that you, you're creating wardrobes that are flexible I know that a lot of people have, you know, their winter wardrobe and then they have their summer wardrobe for when they're sort of feeling like they're in better shape. And then they have sort of that that third level, which is sort of like, you know, hit or miss, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe that'll fit today and maybe next week it won't fit. Um, so having this ability to have something that you know you're comfortable with, that you you feel good about wearing in the style and it fits sort of the way you want it to having those abilities to adjustments again. Um, this is, this is the function part, which I think is pretty innovative and maybe talk a little bit about, um, h- how does this compare with, um, if I was going to go to the department store or to, you know, the, the clothing store and do things off the rack, how does this compare with that? Well, right now, I mean, in our beginning stages where you're in, the pricing is pretty standard. A shirt you can get for 105, uh, pretty standard. But for us, you you literally have creation over the whole entire process. Now, our suits start at 450. It can go all the way up to, you know, over $1,000, depending on the customizable needs that you want. 
Um, we are not bespoke. Um, we are made to measure. Uh, so a bespoke is a multi-stage process. But for us, what makes us a little bit different is if you know some of the other retailers out there, you have, we'll say an Indochino, where they do have a lot of different styles, but we add the functionality pieces and also the functionality, I mean, the, the, the variability of the fabrics and also the style customizations. You have other companies that just focus on functionality. And what's actually beginning to come is people have said it's like adaptive techn technology. So if you are a wounded warrior, if you've been in um, military, been wounded in, in the military, we can create things customizable for you. It might be a zippers on the pants for you to be able to get your pants on just a little bit easier in case something has happened. Nice. Um, so we're still, I mean, we're in the beginning, we're still somewhat, we'll say in the beginning stages and because we believe that this is actually to be the fashion, I mean, the future of, of the fashion industry, of not wearing other people's brands, but rather your own. We don't want to tell you what's in style or what's in season, right? If you decide to have one sleeve blue and one sleeve gray, that's up to you. Like, why do we have to tell you what represents 100% you? That makes a lot of sense. And in this world of personalization and customization, it permeates our lives in every other place almost, right? I want the size that fits me, and I want the look that represents me, and I want the function that fits my lifestyle. And exactly. so that makes a lot of sense. Um, so how long has the company been running? So the idea first came two years ago. I was actually doing some work in China. I was doing some consulting work. And I went by the, the fashion industry because my friend needed a, his suit tailored. And so he was getting his suit tailored and made. And I, and, I, and I asked him and what he was doing. He said, well, I get this suit tailored. And I asked him how much it costs. And I was just dumbfounded by, by the price of it. And I remember looking to the right and there was like these stacks of paper in this big fashion type mall. And the attendant said, that's actually individuals all over the world that come to us to get their clothing made. And see, for the first year, though, me and my co-founder, who's actually an ex-Olympian and designer, we just use it for ourselves. Uh, it was just for us to find clothes. And then so it's really been over the past year, we've actually gone through the process of actually making it into a company and providing it to people from all across the world. And so uh, can you share anything in terms of what you're learning from your initial orders and your initial customers? It's an ongoing process. <laughs> it's like you're always learning. Yeah. Always. <laughs> at, any point, at any point, I say, I've learned everything. Watch watch what happens the next day. I'm going to learn something <laughs> really new. So I'm never, you know. <laughs> but um, one of those things I really learned about the e-commerce space is the processes of automation. How do you scale? Right. So for us, we're really in that beginning scaling mode of having, if, if, if one person orders or a thousand people order, can we be able to handle that process? Right? Yeah. Well, maybe unpack that a little bit. What, so what's so difficult about that? I, I, I imagine that a good number of our audience are like me, that I, I only know enough about the apparel business to be dangerous, but I don't really know how it works. What, what's so difficult about one piece versus a thousand? There's so many different people that are part of the, we'll say the customer supply chain. Now, because our product is so customizable, for the first year, a lot of our work is actually finding the supplies, building the relationships overseas that we're willing to make one-offs. Meaning we're willing to make one shirt with this particular style for this one individual. Most people around the world will not do that. So we've been able to find two, one in Thailand, one in China, that's been able to do that. But that has been some growing pains, right? Because you have language barrier, you have, they have different holidays. 
right? So there's, right. you just have to figure out that most of the times you wouldn't know. But, you know, one of the things in our network is we have a lot of professional athletes that we know in our network. And some people would say, why haven't you done big time marketing campaigns? Is because we know that if one person is pushing our marketing messages out, we have to be able to supply one versus 100. And why is that important? Is because it's about, you don't want to create one, a whole bunch of backlogs. You want to be able to make sure that you are able to deliver in the same time frame. So for example, if somebody orders on a Monday, 100 people order on a Monday, the person that orders on a Tuesday doesn't care or even know about those orders the day before, but they still expect it to their door in two to three weeks. But the factory might say like, we can't build that many, right? We can't make that many. So how are you able to accommodate all of these various different things that happen um, when a, a customer orders? Because you have to treat every single person as an individual. Makes total sense. And I imagine there's a lot of complexities around customs and currency exchanges and not to mention all the stuff that's going on with this, uh, the trade war. So it's probably a lot of stuff that you you didn't think you'd have to get uh, to become an expert on that you've uh, been kind of thrown at you. No, no, that hasn't. I mean, as an expert, I realized one thing. Um, We're not hit by the tariffs. We realize Trump is not going to tariff his own stuff. He sells ties and suits in China, so we know that's not going to be tariffed. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That part hasn't affected us. You know, I remember early on when we were doing our initial orders, and we had this particular order that we made. I think it was like, like 10 suits. And we got quoted from our suppliers at a particular price. And then the next week we reordered the same items and it was a different price. I'm like, what's going on? We thought we were getting scammed. They're like, no, the, the, the currency changed. And at that moment, you realize like all of these different things that people are talking about on a daily basis, how it can actually affect businesses every day. Yeah. So for example, if that was 10 orders versus a million orders, that could have been the difference between a company losing or gaining a million on a single day just from currency. It sounds like you've spent a lot of time just trying to make sure that you have sort of good fit with the market and what what the expectations and value for the customer is. Um, so where where do you go from here? But I'd say in terms of our traction, what we do have, we are cash positive. We are making revenues. Um, we are making, I mean, a profit. In addition to, we have sports agents that are having conversations with us that are looking for athlete representation in terms of the clothing. We do have conversations with, sign up conversations with firefighters and police officers as well. So we can also start fitting them. And then also, like I said, we also do have operations in internationally to be able to actually be able to buy it. And I'll say the most important thing is that we physically can make any fabric. We can print our own fabric. We can do all the customizations we need and we can be able to get it to the client store in roughly two to three weeks. So that's a lot of different traction. Now it's about doing the marketing efforts next. Now that makes a lot of sense. That's good stuff. Uh, so we're going to take a short break to hear from one of our sponsors. And we'll be back in a few moments with A.K. Equawker from Elite Styles. Hey, I'm sure we've all had the experience of being the only person of color at a tech conference or on our tech team. Hey, this is Boris Moiston from Black Men Talk Tech. We built Black Men Talk Tech to create an authentic community for men of color. Um, Our inaugural conference, Unicorn Ambition, is the only national tech conference which seeks to provide uh, resources to black men tech founders. We're trying to turn growing startups into 
unicorns. Our conference takes place in Miami, October 23rd and 24th. Investors and entrepreneurs from all over the country are flying in. Uh, people are signing up for our pitch competition already. Head over to blackmentalktech.com for more information and to secure your tickets. We're back with AK Equalker from Elite Styles. So AK, we were talking a little bit about the, where the company is going and some of the intricacies doing e-commerce in a global setting. You have a lot of experience working uh, in the global arena. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about some of your prior experiences, um, particularly the NGO that you ran for a while, and sort of how, you, how your career got you to this place to start this company. You know, I grew up in um, Arvada, Colorado. It, it was a place that wasn't very diverse, but I was lucky to get a college scholarship to the University of Oregon where I ran track and field and found a lot of success there. And it was actually through sports that gave me my first experience traveling internationally, seeing things outside of my own four walls of, of where I grew up. And so I ran for the country of Nigeria, my parents' home country. But what I really learned from traveling internationally was you can't put a person into a particular box. You realize the importance of just cross-cultural communication and building relationships and networks. And I think especially your ability to create relationships around the world is really key. So my first company that I started was a company called Empower to Play. And that started actually when I was working at a boarding school called uh, Phillips Exeter Academy. And what we focused on was sports diplomacy and youth development. And we worked with the, the U.S. government. We got funding from the State Department to actually help rebuild relationships between the United States and, and Haiti. But from this endeavor, it taught me, especially running an NGO and a nonprofit, was I love the experience. I don't know if I would do it again, necessarily, but yeah, it, it teaches you a lot about business and relationships running an, an, an NGO. Now, I should say when I started, it's not like it's like, oh, I'm going to start an NGO. I actually had no business background and I left my job, put my two weeks in. And I remember like the first two weeks I w was on my own. They said, cool, you're going to start this NGO and you're going to follow this 501c3. I'm like, what's a, what's a 501c3? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to know. That's kind of the whole basis of what an NGO was. But I learned so much about the importance of bootstrapping and building relationships and building trust with um, key stakeholders in domestic and international countries. And when you start an NGO, everything is very mission and vision driven. And you realize the power of a story. You realize that you have to motivate and get people excited through, you know, storytelling and getting people on board for this a strong, positive mission. So when you go into the for-profit sector, your ability to motivate, your ability to bootstrap is really, really strong. But I would say for the past years, because I've done so much work in international space, it just makes you think, feel as though the, the value you can have in international markets, the relationships you can build, it's actually not that tough as people think to build relationships internationally or even do an international business. It's really about relationship building. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's unwind though a little bit, uh, or rewind. What makes you sort of give your two weeks notice and dive in head first into the deep end of this, uh, this opportunity to do Empower to Play? So I was working in a school called Phillips Exeter Academy. It's a boarding school in, in New England. 
there was a few different factors. The first one was I picked up this random book called The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, yeah. <laughs> and I read that book and it started to make give me the understanding of what entrepreneurship was outside of just making a starting a big corporation, right? There was a mindset piece to it. Sure. Um, and it was a quality of life. And at that time I was working morning until night and it was a it was a fine job. But I remember there was a specific question that I had and I went to my boss and I said, I want to raise. And they said, well, you don't get raises that way. What you do is you get 3% every year plus a thousand. And I said, even if I start new programming, it's like, yeah, it's still the same. Like, so no matter what I do, no matter what I do, yeah, I, there's nothing I can do to make more money. So at that moment, I knew what I was going to make 20 years from now. Right. Due to inflation, I wasn't really going to make anything. And I had these certain goals that I had. And I was like, I can't, I can't live this particular life. And I, put my two weeks in. And that summer I ended up traveling just to meet a friend in the Philippines. We actually worked at the Cheesecake Factory years beforehand. And I just said, hey, we're, I'm going over there. Let's just do something fun. And I just brought a bag full of footballs. And I remember going to this city in Quezon City, Philippines, this neighborhood and walking around the streets and realizing that some of these families and kids weren't living in the best situation I was to right. ask some of these kids, you know, and the family, what happens to these kids that aren't able to go to school? Because a lot of them were walking around during the school day and they said, well, some of them go down unhealthy life choices. Yeah. And so at that moment, I was only an intern. I wasn't even making that much money either. Figured out what it was going to be to get five of these kids a scholarship in this school. And I was going to be healthy meals, transportation to and from, school supplies. And I remember nice. there was this one girl named Raylin and she was like eight years old and I and I really, really connected with her. But I realized like, I didn't have enough to get her a scholarship. And so when they're announcing the names of the kids that were gonna get a scholarship, fortunately, unfortunately, but fortunately, they announced her name. And, oh, wow. Um, this woman behind me just starts breaking down crying. And I turn around and I ask her, what, 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 what's, what's going on? And she said, Raylin's my daughter. My husband just left me. My daughter hasn't been able to go to school. And now she can finally be the doctor that she dreams to be. Right. And I'm just this 26 year old kid. And I look around the, this, this field, wow. there's 300 of the kids there. And I realized that by the time I left and came back, some of these kids may not have had that opportunity. So that's actually how my first company was born because I needed resources and a team to be able to make that impact. Wow. That's moving. I, I can picture you and even put myself in that situation and say, Oh my gosh. Um, I've done some, some, uh, nonprofit where seeing the look in somebody's eyes when their lives change instantly is it's life changing for the observer. And so mm -hmm. I can see how that would drive you. Um, I understand that the, the lessons that you learn in a, you know, NGO nonprofit setting are powerful for the for-profit sector. I, I think the tough part is that you're, you're constantly striving to want to, bridge the gap of, can I do all the things that I want to do to meet my vision? And how do I actually get the resources? And so it can be challenging too, I'm sure. Yeah. And, you know, because I didn't, you know, go to school for it, I didn't, it wasn't something that I was like, this is what I want to do from early on. A lot of it was learning on as we go. I had a team of 50 people from all over the world, a board, a team, funding from the state department. We got this big opportunity to help you build relationships between you know, Haiti in the United States in 2016. But a lot of people don't realize what happens when I would go home. 
you know, I'd go home from some of these trips and I'd be getting Facebook messages and from families that are saying, we're, we're, we're hungry, My, our families are sick. Yeah. And it was an ongoing thing. And I realized at some point that one, it, there was, there was some, there was some risks, safety risks on my side, because when I went into some of these communities, everybody was amazing, but I was starting to be seen as the money guy. Right. In addition to, I remember in 2016, this was the reason, you know, I, I, I don't do imperative play anymore, but it was 2016 and we were going to this place called Cicela, Haiti. And it's where one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the world. And we we're doing this sports diplomacy initiative to help rebuild, like I said, the two countries. And we're using VR technology to show people real time how these communities live. And I remember one of the big impactful things from this experience, first one was, walking to some of the most dangerous streets in the world, but seeing young boys and girls going to church in their Sunday outfits. And it made me realize no matter how bad or bad a place, I put those in quotes, there's still a majority of the population that's just living normal lives. Right. right? Of just kids and, 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 and families that a lot of the people around the world may not see when you're on the ground. And then the second part was, I would say there's an ego thing that happened to me that I didn't realize but when this event was coming we were featured in sports illustrated i was super excited it's like my whole world's gonna change yeah and um i remember it was a night before the event there was a lot of these things as we're going to do this project things that we planned for in the preparation weren't exactly happening what we expected on the ground for example when we were doing the preparation everybody spoke english but when we actually got on the ground the week of everybody spoke french i don't speak french And all these little things. And it came the night before the event where we had to come up with a large amount of money in a short amount of time because of just some logistical stuff. And the U.S. ambassadors come to the next day. And I just hit this rock bottom moment because I felt like I just failed. And another reason I felt like I failed is because I, in 2016, I was decided if I was going to actually train for the Olympics or do this sports diplomacy initiative. And I decided to do this initiative. Yeah. So this moment when I feel like I was losing everything. I get a call from my daughter at the time. Her name is Haven, and she was three years old on FaceTime. And she looks super excited. She's like, Daddy, 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 guess what? I'm like, what? What? Like this <laughs> moment. And uh, she said, I drew you a picture. And the picture was actually of me and her holding hands. And it was at that moment I realized, like, she didn't care about how big or small this initiative was. What she cared about was, I just care about Daddy. I just love Daddy. And at that moment, I realized I was more than just an entrepreneur or the founder of Elite Style. I mean, Empower to Play, and I guess also Elite Styles, but I'm also a father. I'm also multiple different labels as we want to put ourselves. And that was the moment that I realized that the balance that I need to have in my life needs to change a little bit. That makes uh, a lot of sense. And I think, you know, we all go through these moments where we have to sort of stop and look in the mirror and say, is this where my purpose still lies? Is this where I'm supposed to be? Because it's, you know, as entrepreneurs, you definitely run into the situations of, you know, peaks and valleys. And the challenge is there's no, there's no map that says when the next peak is coming. And so sometimes it feels like it's going on forever. And sometimes the peaks feel like they're too quick and fleeting, but it's hard to say, do I keep going sometimes? And so that's always a tough decision, right? About what is it that is going to be the right thing? Do we keep going? Do we, you know, sunset? Do we pivot? Do we, do I remove myself and let the, let the entity keep going? So I think these are real, these are real decisions. And especially for something like Empower to Play, where no, no VCs are writing you checks, 
And so, which is a whole different kind of pressure, but you know, it's not like you have a bunch of resources and you're just sort of tired of the grind, right? Yeah, it's even different. I mean, I'd rather take a VC check because what people don't realize is in a for-profit, in a non-profit, your benchmarks are people, human beings, the impact that you have. And it's not just a uh, the picture that people have on the front of their website. Like, I know these people. Their name is Ray Lynn. This person's Tom. This person's Sally. There's, They actually have names of human beings. And so the pressure that you have every single day. And I remember there's moments that we didn't have it. I had to sell stuff in my own house to help provide scholarships when we had tough moments. Oh, man. Wow. Those kids woke up one day and they had an opportunity. And they don't know where the opportunity comes from. They just woke up one day, did something, an amazing thing. And it was up to us to be able to fulfill it. So, for example, with Elite, if we decide to close down shop, we just stop selling it. We just sell the inventory. But you can't do that as easily or you can't do that with human beings and people. And that is your milestones and benchmarks. Right. I was watching some of uh, your videos. I love the 365 days of AK. So for our audience, if you're looking for some inspirational stuff that uh, AK did during this 2016 timeframe, it's pretty cool. Uh, but one of them, uh, a separate video you did, you talked about the 400 meters and the analogy of the race to life. And one of the interesting things oh, yeah. that you talked about was how the race doesn't begin when the gun goes off at the starting line. Maybe t- talk a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, so for me, my background, I was a, I was a 400 athlete, 400 meter runner uh, in college and professionally. And I compared it to success and success in life. And most people think that when you're running a 400 meter dash, and that's one time around the track or a quarter mile, that the race starts when the gun goes off. And it's, it's not when it starts. As a matter of fact, the first part is just getting out and just finding your rhythm, but the race actually starts 200 meters or halfway into the race. And that is when it actually starts to get uncomfortable. So for example, you might have this entrepreneur that says, I'm going to start this company. The company doesn't really start <laughs> when you decide to follow the, 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 the EIN. Yes, it starts. Right. But when it really becomes a company is when you start to have some of those uncomfortable moments when you had a presentation that you wanted to have but somebody just didn't like it or you realize that you're (laughs) you got to make some really difficult decisions or you realize you're just too tired to just move on and that usually happens at the 200 meter mark and so what what people don't realize in the 400 meter dash especially when they're coming down that home stretch people think that people are surging ahead and that's not what's happening people aren't surging ahead for the last 100 meters, what's actually happening is that Pete, it's the one that's actually dying the least. The that- <laughs> Everybody's hurting. Everybody's hurting, but it's the one that's willing to maintain form. The one that's able to say, even though it's hard, I'm still going to pick my feet up. Yeah. And that is what really happens. So it's really about success in life. is isn't about always being the first. It's about, are you willing to continue to go through the pain, the discomfort, the doubt, and be able to just to hold on as the other people next to you that still wanted the same begin to fall off? Yeah, I love that. I think that's such a, it's such a profound metaphor. You know, I, I, people have different opinions about Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it, when he talked about his Mr. Universe days, he talked about how when he would work out, he would not count reps until it started to hurt. He said, whatever I did before then didn't matter. So until I started to feel the pain and the burn, then I would start to count the number of reps I was doing. Um, so it's a kind of a similar thing I think you're talking about. And 
I did team sports. I'm a big team sports fan. Um, and I know you play football too, but I think there's something very unique about the individual athlete and the concept of being in your own head as much as the competitors being in your head. You know, I do this activity where, you know, I travel around the world and I do speak and I do this activity where I help people identify their why is the number one driving factor. And mine is always about getting out of my own head. And sports, you realize this in so many different ways. And, you know, talking even about the, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger example is when that pain starts to set in, that's where the growth starts to happen. Totally. And the ability to continue to push and even think about even on the 100 meter dash sports is about delayed gratification you're going to usually have more pain and be more uncomfortable and then come back stronger but when you're on that line for the 100 meter dash everybody has done similar training everybody wants to win and everybody thinks they're going to win but it is that mindset that comes in to say, I'm not, when that gun goes off, the, the gun doesn't go off when you're ready. The gun goes off at 8.03, whatever time it decides to go ready. To go right, off. right. When the gun goes off or when that, you know, when, when, the, when the shot clock is, is going down, are you going to be the one that crumbles underneath that pressure? And the translation from sports into business or life or entrepreneurship is the same exact thing. It's the sense of the mindset where some people's like, what is, how do you, how are you able to move through difficult situations? Like sometimes I quit. I do. Sometimes I'm like so tired I quit. And then all of a sudden I wake up in the middle of the night and an idea comes and I'm right back into it. Yeah. It's that mindset that's really going to be driving you through that says, even when it's difficult, how can I change it? How can I have this growth mindset? How can I have this vision for the future? Whatever you need to do that puts one foot in front of the other is one of the most important traits that I think is about success and even growth, to be honest. And, you know, you're, you're my third athlete that I'm interviewing on the podcast who's been at the elite levels. And I see this, this crossover from that mentality into the startup realm because you do go through these situations where I just got to keep moving forward. I've got to keep the momentum. And what does it take for me to, you know, to, to, to do this thing for this week, for this month, for this day? And you do have to have a mindset of, growth and learning and this is the way I thought it was going to work and it's not working that way there are some things I can take and say let's try this and so I th- in, in order to persevere it's 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 critical and like you said the idea of delayed gratification is is so important both for athletes and to some degree for for startups i mean it's a long journey the average you know funded startup still takes 7 to 10 years to think about going public and it can be maybe a little shorter if somebody's going to buy you. It'll take years potentially to get to profitable growth at scale. And so it's not a college course that you just have to sort of, you know, grind through for a few months or a year. You know, when you think about the the course and or even class in sports, sports is one of those things that you get in it's delayed gratification, but you get instant feedback. Right. So if you, in the entrepreneurship, you can think about it all day in your head. Like how many people say I've had all of these ideas of the companies they can build, but it's the only ones that take that action. I'm only going to know if I'm going to make that shot if I take the shot. I'm only going to know if I'm in shape if I actually get on the race and run. So it's always this thing about immediate gratification, delayed gratification, immediate response, and it teaches you who you're going to blame. I can't blame anybody else because I decided to stay up all night 
and not take care of my body. So there's right. a self-awareness piece. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Always ongoing and ongoing with athletics and practice and in competition. Absolutely. Well, let's dive more into that. When we get back, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with AK Equawker from Elite Styles right after this. Hey, I'm sure we've all had the experience of being the only person of color at a tech conference or on our tech team. Hey, this is Boris Moiston from Black Men Talk Tech. We built Black Men Talk Tech to create an authentic community for men of color. Um, our inaugural conference, Unicorn Ambition, is the only national tech conference which seeks to provide uh, resources to black men tech founders. We're trying to turn the growing startups into unicorns. Our conference takes place in Miami, October 23rd and 24th. Investors and entrepreneurs from all over the country are flying in. Uh, people are signing up for our pitch competition already. Head over to blackmentalktech.com for more information and to secure your tickets. We're back with AK Equawker from Elite Styles, and we were talking about the athlete's journey and how it relates to preparing you essentially for the entrepreneurial roadmap. Let's talk a little bit about the Olympics and training for the Olympics. I think most of our audience doesn't have any insight into what's that, what is that like and how do you make the decision to pursue that and how do you do that, at least here in the U.S. where you can get support, but you're not paid to do it. So how, how did that journey begin for you? And tell us a little bit more about that. So yeah, um, for me, I was a... I went to the University of Oregon, ran track and field. And then my senior year, I decided to do something fun, try some football. Uh, that nice. ended amazing with a torn ACL. Oh, um, <laughs> <ouch>. <laughs> I tore my ACL and I just hated sports. I hated it, um, especially because at the end, I felt like I was just a number. And so at this moment, I had a, a torn ACL and... It was, I hated sports so much, I told the doctors I didn't even want to get it repaired because I didn't want to play anymore. I was that. Really? Wow. So it's crazy to think I do sports now when this is what was happening, you know, 10 years ago. And what ended up happening was because I wasn't working out and I had this knee issue, um, I ended up gaining 40 pounds. I was like 260. And I ran at 195 pounds, 200 pounds. So I gained 40 to 50 pounds in several months. Cause I was still eating like a football player. And so I remember I ended up going after I graduated from college, going to Rarotonga. Uh, it's an island off New Zealand with uh, my girlfriend at the time. And while I was there, one of the individuals that was with us, he heard about my story and he says, have you ever thought about training for the Olympics? And I said, well, this physique you have, you see right now, isn't exactly the build. I was like, well, <laughs> Should have caught me like a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> but but that conversation really stuck with me. It actually happened to be that individual actually ended up being an Olympic swimmer the following Olympics. And that conversation stuck with me that I actually moved back to Oregon, um, Portland, Oregon, and going through six hours of rehab surgery. So I was training six hours a day. Part of it was rehab. The other part was training. And I actually ended up running the fastest time I I have in, in, in years, ended up traveling to Nigeria, um, selling everything that I had. This is another journey, I guess. 
I ended up actually selling everything that I had because I needed to move down to California for competitions because the only competitions that were happening in Oregon were long distance events. Uh, uh, so all I had other on my back was everything I can just fit in my Dodge Neon at the time. And I was crashing on a friend's couch. Uh, wow. Yeah. And so I, so the next day or t a week later, I fly out to Nigeria to do the Olympic trials. And this is my first really international trip. It was like a 24 hour trip. And the day that I get in representative, um, one of the delegates comes up to me and he says, Hey, you know, that a whole Olympic trials that are happening in a week, we're actually going to decide we're going to do it tomorrow. Uh Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, what? I've been traveling for like 24 hours. And they said, what you have to do is you have to get top four. I'm like, what? So my first international trip. And so I remember the next day getting on the ground, getting onto the track, warming up, the gun going off. And I remember crossing the finish line and I get third place. And it's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to the Olympic Games. I, I, I remember I was on the plane. Yeah. Super excited. <laughs> And I don't know, I was watching a movie called like August Rush. I don't, it was a sad movie. I don't know if I was crying because of the movie or crying because of something. I just was super excited. <laughs> yeah. Tell my whole family, my friends, this is the Nigerian Olympic team, this lifelong journey. And so there was this situation, I was in Egypt and we had to do this qualifying meet. And one of the things when I was doing, when I was traveling, I never drank the water. They said, don't drink the water, drink the water. But right. I was tired of drinking warm water. And so I remember going to the bar and asking, said, can I just get a cold glass of a water? Just a cold glass of water with ice. And what ended up happening was I drank that, I, I drank that water. In the middle of the night, uh, I started to get a little bit of a, a rumbly tummy, if you can say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know where the story's going. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't feeling well. I got sick. And I remember going back to Nigeria um, after just being extremely dehydrated and just sick. I remember getting to my room and a knock comes on my door and it's the same delegate. And they said, you know, the whole Olympic trials we did a week ago, um, that race, we decided we we're going to redo it and do it tomorrow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, what? But I was like, I just made, I can do it again. But instead of having um, athletes that qualified beforehand in two rounds and that pre-qualified, they now did an open casting for the whole country. So instead of being two heats, it now turned into 43 heats. Oh, my God. Now, if I'm sitting in your shoes, I'm starting to think, okay, there's a conspiracy theory here. There's something going on with, you know, people trying to make sure that I just don't get this chance. Yeah. And so, as you know, I made it through the first round. Um, I made it through the second round. And uh, third round, just being sick, I didn't make it through. So having that feeling of making the Olympics, telling the families, my family, my friends, and my coaches, to then two weeks later, watching it at home, the, the opening ceremonies at home on the television. Wow. Brutal. How does one step up and, and come back from that? You know, when I have that story of him at rock bottom with the Olympics, and when I talk about even the story with Empower to Play, so that story in 2016, when I had the story of that second chance to qualify for the Olympics or do the sports diplomacy mission, that's what I was missing, that second chance at the Olympics. But I chose to do this impact mission. So when you lost that as well, in a way, what I actually realized is what actually found me was that I realized like how many of my friends and even my co-founder, he made the Olympics the first year. And he thought he had that day after situation. Like I got the Olympics and he wakes up the next day and he's like, well, the world didn't change. 
Right. I was supposed to, I thought was, all this stuff was gonna happen. It didn't happen. So what did he do? He went and got a second Olympics. Oh my and wow. woke up, guy he's a two-time Olympian, woke up, same thing happened. And there's so many of these individuals that are always have that are always chasing, they're always chasing, and I'm not it's not bad, but they have this day after effect. Right. And I realize in some capacity how many times that if I yes, if I did get the Olympics, um, yes, it would have been helpful. But I remember how many conversations I was having, like, well, I can't reach out to Nike until I become an Olympian. I can't do this and to become until I become an Olympian. I can't do this until I get on the cover of this. And I realized that it was actually holding me back from doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, that, what, when it comes right down to it, right, it's about what, what's, uh, my, my brother has this great saying that he pins to his mirror that says, my purpose in the world is where my passion meets the world's needs. Mm-hmm. And that isn't always about making money. It isn't always about even doing some of the things you're really good at. I mean, I, I'm a pretty good dishwasher, but uh, and I do that at my house. <laughs> but I don't 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 endeavor to be. I don't think that's the best way for me to serve the world is to do that professionally, for instance, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think a lot of people go through this, like you said, they're chasing something or some things or some status or some financial snapshot they think they should be at some accolades through professional work and if they don't have that alignment around passion and and what the world needs then there's always that thing that's sort of tugging at them and every time they have a setback there then it's it's magnified because then you're feeling it's like yes i'm you know i'm left-handed right so if i you make me right, right-handed, I'll try really hard. But as soon as I can't do it that well, or I can't um, throw, or I can't, uh, you know, I'll, I'm, it's going to hurt me more because I know that I'm naturally left-handed and I need to be using my left hand, and yet I'm not. And so I think a lot of uh, people go through, hopefully, they go through that sort of epiphany around, okay, what am I really supposed to do? And it's not like the things that you do in the past are irrelevant or they were a mistake because they lead you to that conclusion or that epiphany, but it helps to sort of have that sort of um, introspection. And that's really big in the entrepreneurship journey because you're always going through that introspection, right? Whenever you start a company, there's always probably somebody that's saying to you, what well, doesn't somebody, has already somebody started that? Like, who do you think you are? Right. You always have, and most of those thoughts and those experiences sometimes happen when you're all by yourself. And so there's that deep reflection that always is happening. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And am I going to get lost in the process? I have, I remember I was having a conversation that, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking engagements, meeting with, you know, athletes and CEOs. And how many times I've had a conversation with them and their companies own them. Yeah. In a way, emotionally. And I, I told, I remember I was having a conversation with somebody at, um, Lyft, he was high up. I said, what do I do if I told you that Lyft sucks? <laughs> and I was like, it's at that moment when you can realize that you're not it, but you are it. It's like you, it's all of these experiences that you have, just like the multi-sport athlete makes you better at your one sport, whatever that needs to be. Right. But you can't let it own you because you're going to be lost in the process and not realizing that it might be relationships that are falling out of the way, or it might be ego that's leading the way. And so whenever anything happens in that company, you become the up and down motion of whatever that's happening with that company. You need to be able to step back and think about this from a 3,000 foot level and removing that ego and be able to think clearly. That makes so much sense. Man, you're deep. You are deep, brother. Let's talk about, 
as a black founder, are there people that have been particularly helpful, catalysts, mentors, organizations? What are, what have been sort of the, uh, the, the it takes a village, so to speak, to help get you moving forward and to put you in the position you're in today? I've had so many mentors and I don't like to you always use the word mentors because I've gotten so much knowledge, so much thought-provoking support in, in so many different ways. I, I see the world and every single person in it as a learning opportunity. I can learn about happiness from somebody that's homeless. I can learn about success from you know somebody that's maybe that's lost everything and had everything. You know, so I would say people that have really been influential though, when it first started were books when I was working in the, in the boarding school and there wasn't other entrepreneurs around me. So the books and the videos and all those that I would watch, that would be those initial mentors. I would say family has really been a big support. I would say other entrepreneurs. It's hard for me to say one person. I would even say some of my enemies have been some, some really big mentors about how not to treat other people. It's, it's, it's a reflective process because I believe a, the growth of your company is going to come to your individual growth as an individual. And, and you have to be able to take feedback from anybody. Um, you can decide to you know, take it or leave it, but that ability to get feedback from anywhere is extremely valuable. So as a Black, you know, I'm, I'm you know, African-American, the support that I've had have come in all different shades and colors and creeds and all different backgrounds. It kind of goes through the idea that I talk about what owns us. And yes, I am Black, but at the same time, I also do have multiple other different factors. I'm an athlete. Right, that's been able to help me. Some of the schools that I've gone to has helped in different capacities. And I realize that the more that I may, if I put any type of self-limiting belief in my situation, I just have to understand, okay, well, maybe I have to apply 20 more times than somebody else, but I'm not going to quit. My vision is much stronger. It also comes, comes to understand where can I use my strengths and my weaknesses together? I understand when I walk into a room, I might need to smile more. I may need to introduce myself as an athlete because to me, they may see that as more less intimidating. But at the same time, my goal is how can I just treat everybody with respect? How can I be social? If somebody decides to help me, not help me, I realize I got to keep on moving, moving forward. Yeah, that's, that's a great philosophy. I think that, uh, you know, there, there is sort of this double mindedness sometimes about how do I celebrate who I am? But at the same time, how do, how do I choose when, it's appropriate to magnify that. And when it's, when it's not as pertinent. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, I mean, when you walk in the room as an athlete, you know, people look at you, right. And I'm sure, you know, in this corner of their eye, they're thinking that person was probably doing something if they're not today, that's at a high level athletically, that journey has helped to define you, but that label doesn't define you, right? It's, exactly. it's, you're a businessman, you're a, you're a motivational speaker, you're an entrepreneur, right? And so you're not fit into this one box. And I know as um, African-American founders, you know, I've had discussions with folks who have sort of um, different perspectives on how to, how to handle that. Sometimes they want to sort of deal with the elephant in the room and just sort of either you know, double down on it or address it. And then others are sort of, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. That's that's the, the above the fold tagline. And I'm going to show through what other entrepreneurs do to prove, you know, sort of that I'm onto something and that what I'm building is value. So I think it's, it's really interesting to explore how 
where we come from leads us to a place where we can have a perspective and be intentional about how we, how we think about it. Um, even if it is in a way that we think, okay, I have to be selective about how I do this. That's everybody, isn't it? It's, so I, I don't talk to my mom the same way I talk to my best friend, right? Or joking. So it is, when, it, when it's a company, you realize that you represent more than just yourself. And so you have to remove your own ego because you represent the livelihoods of other individuals. And my goal is to run a clothing company. My goal is to run a sports diplomacy company. And I'm not saying, and I don't say that I'm not, obviously when people see me, they see I'm an, uh, a black male, but I also do a lot of work within the community, right? I see myself as in all of us, we have a toolbox and we have so many different tools and when a situation arises, what tool do I need to bring out of the box to get to the, the specific solution or end goal that I need? And that's how I usually look at a lot of these different things as I'm moving forward is what tool is needed for this particular situation. I'm in a boarding room. Do I need to talk about this particular topic or might, should I have some restraint and maybe take that individual and have that side conversation one-on-one instead of being whatever it needs to be in a particular conversation? It just has to be understanding when I need to do things and not fighting every battle at every single time, but also understanding that I'm representing more than just myself. A lot of wisdom there. You are definitely wise beyond your years, AK. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap up and maybe you can tell the audience how they could find out more about Elite Styles or is there ways to get a hold of you or follow what you're doing? Yeah, um, you can check out EliteStyles.com, but that's spelled like E-L-E-T-E, like athlete, EliteStyles.com. But I'm involved in a lot of different projects and, and work really on the impact side. And you can t- connect with me directly on LinkedIn or Instagram. And that's at A-K, last name is I-K-W-U-A-K-O-R. And those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Well, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time, AK, and um, uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a blessing. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our guest, AK Eekwalker, and our sponsor, Black Men Talk Tech. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter, at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Our music was composed by Bobby Cole, Bruce Zimmerman, Keith Anthony Holden, Mikhail Manvelian, and Jason Donnelly. I'm Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound. Founders Unfound.